Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And there's probably no policy issue or policy question that's more front and center now when we're talking about the innovation economy than antitrust. Technology companies and companies overall now are, are, in, the, are in the firing line, if you will, on, on antitrust concerns, not just here in America, but really in Europe in particular and other countries. So we're going to talk about that today. Our guest is Aurelian Portuez, who recently joined ITIF as Director of Antitrust and Innovation Policy. He's also an adjunct professor of law at the Global Antitrust Institute of George Mason University and at the Catholic University of Paris. And his book, Antitrust Populism, Competition Policy Under Tech Innovations, will be published later this year by Oxford University Press. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So maybe we'll start off. Um, tell us, you know, what is antitrust and why does it matter? Well, I think antitrust is a very important area of law that determines the rules of the game for enterprise in America. These are very old laws because they were first enshrined in 1890. And they basically said what firms can do and cannot do, even if sometimes they enter into some mutually accepted uh, contract, some contract may go against some public policy provisions and the lawmakers or the judges may consider those contracts as being against the interest of either the consumers or innovation and a number of, of interests that are determined by the judges themselves. Yeah, so antitrust law, it's not like, it's not like other fields of law where it's, it, it, there's bright red lines uh, you know, there's there's laws around, for example, terrorism or financial fraud. They're relatively bright red lines. You're either on one side or the other. If you're on the wrong side, you go to jail or you get a fine. Antitrust, even if you look at the original statute, the Sherman Act, it's very vague. Uh, what is anti-competitive behavior? What is a monopolization? Uh, can you talk a little bit about why that makes things complicated? And also, it leads to why there are these trends in antitrust, one side going one way for a while, and now we're in this other period. It seems like this emerging period. is What's going on there? That's exactly the case. These rules of antitrust are purportedly vague. They are made vague because some say that antitrust is a bit like the economic constitution of America. It says how firms should behave. But it says in a very large and broad terms. So the question is, what do you put behind those terms such as anti-competitive behavior? And what is fascinating with antitrust is precisely its vagueness. And it, it's more about a gray zone than red lines, as you, as you just said. And in order to clarify antitrust and how it's applied, economics and economics of innovation can shed lots of lights on how to understand the enforcement of antitrust law. So these, these rules are very broad, very vague, and they need to be applied on a case-by-case -case basis by the courts with the help of economics in order to understand what these rules mean for a specific firm or specific period of time. And, and you're completely right, there has been tensions 
I mean, just to sum up very simply, those tensions, there are two tensions. When those antitrust laws were adopted, which late 19th century, there was a populism that was underlying. There was a populist party in America in the late 19th century. And out of these populist tensions, which were made mostly by farmers, there was this very anti-corporate power, anti corporate corporation that led to the passing the passage of of the Sherman Act that's one tension which goes against bigness against large corporate power and the other point of view is to precisely say that we need to clarify antitrust with the help of economics we need to rationalize antitrust we need to try to have some objective standards in order to enforce antitrust and so this goes against the populist view in order to clarify, objectivize the enforcement of antitrust. And if you look for more than a century of antitrust enforcement, there's always had been some tensions and pendulum swing between the populist version of antitrust, which goes against bigness without uh, full consideration of efficiencies of economics analysis, and the real or at least the, the profoundly economic approach to antitrust, which only focus on efficiency and, and those matters. And, and this is also the beauty of antitrust. Uh, the, the, the debate is ongoing. And I think those days, you cannot miss this debate. I wrote a piece for American Compass recently, uh, arguing that there's three Sort of, sort of frames for economics. There's sort of the the, the market-oriented free market tends to be oriented to the right. There's the the emergent sort of, uh, if you will, redistributionist argument from the left, and then there's the, something in the middle, which is really around pushing for growth and innovation and a stronger economy and higher state living standards. And what I see today is that 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 part of the left, the sort of populist left, which is really focusing on redistribution, has taken antitrust as a core component of their agenda, their toolbox. They see antitrust as a way to advance redistribution, even though I think that's faulty. We can talk about that, why I don't think that's going to happen. But it's very different than an antitrust focused on how do we make consumers' lives better? How do, how do we improve living standards? And uh, and that, that to me is kind of a very important question. What do you want? Like a lot of the populists say, we don't like Amazon or even Walmart because because they're big and because, you know, they take market share away from maybe some mom and pops here and there. But I got to tell you, I, I love going to Home Depot. Uh, it has so much more variety than I used to have my local hardware store. And I save money. I like going to Amazon. So can you say a little bit more about that, that how much of this is really about what it is we want as a society? Exactly. I mean, the way you enforce antitrust, the way you see antitrust would completely determine American capitalism and the way you see enterprise to operate in the market. If we put this kind of anti-market concentration objective to antitrust, then you will pursue as the new populist would argue, and as you just rightly frame, you would pursue deconcentration at all costs, at any cost, right? So the, if you put your criterion as the size and as the small and locally owned businesses, which is the objective of antitrust, and it's possible because, again, 
it comes from a populist origins. And so the, the provisions are so vague that they can uh, put these, these objectives. But this comes from with a major cost and it comes uh, against efficiency and innovation. The other approach is, of course, to focus only on efficiency and consumer price and say that antitrust should be about lowering the prices. And I think there has been also on that part from the economic side, perhaps an exaggerated focus on lowering of price. We see, as you just read say, we see in our today's life that firms compete not strictly and simply over prices, but they, they compete over quality and also price considerations sometimes is very, very far in the entrepreneur mindset, the capacity for them to recoup and to make profits in, in an economy where that digital platforms can be very far away. And so the criterion of price has perhaps been overstated. And what is important, what we may think, is a dynamic view to competition. A dynamic view to competition would be very, very different in a sense that it will not focus on deconcentrating the economy for at any cost. It will not focus simply and merely on price, but it will focus clearly on spurring innovation, protecting productivity, and ensuring, of course, that consumer welfare is protected. But this comes for, with a longer view of, uh, of, of competition. And, and that is a very different approach, which is not dominant those days, because those days dominated by a new antitrust populism that reverts back to the old populism that we had in the late 19th century. You've said that antitrust laws increasingly foster risk-averse attitudes, and ITIF has written about this so-called precautionary principle, which is well-known in environmental or medical laws, and that's how we wrote about it. But now it's really entered this antitrust conversation. Can you explain what the principle means and what it implies for antitrust? Yes, of course. What is very interesting is that firms compete with innovation. They compete disruptively. And they compete in a way that sometimes lawmakers and regulators don't understand or also that the laws and regulations were not made for these kind of disruptive innovations. So disruptive innovations may lead to very original, if not unique, business behavior that could be seen not as innovation, but as anti-competitive behavior. And you see that novel behavior, novel competitive behavior are increasingly seen with greater skepticism and with greater reluctance because that could be uh, uh, some anti-competitive behavior. Just to give you an example, a very uh, clear example between business model. I mean, we know that in terms of traditional business model, you as a firm, you charge your uh, consumer a price. But there's a new uh, business model that is growing and you can't miss is the ad funded business model where you increasingly see that a number of services and products that we have are free of charge because they are funded by advertisement. And this completely revolutionized the way we need to think about antitrust enforcement. And I mean, sadly enough, I think the regulators and lawmakers don't want to rethink the way antitrust is being enforced and take increasingly risk-averse position. Let me tell you why. I mean, 
there is an overall consensus by the fact that not only antitrust has been under-enforced, but also that the argument goes that antitrust enforcement is too long, right? If you want to sue a company, that will take years before you go to court. The precautionary antitrust we, we, we describe is that even before anti-competitive behavior occur, even if there is no harm to consumers, then regulators need to step in and to, pre to prevent these competitive behavior to, to occur. And this is a precautionary because it intervenes before the harm has ever occurred. And this is very, very different because you set the rules of the game before the behavior occur. For example, in, in, in uh, the European Union, you can see that the precautionary measure to competition rules are increasingly adopted under, let's say, interim measures so that you can force company to do a number of things even before a trial is, is put. But also the, um, the regulatory shift so that antitrust has failed and we should resort more and more to regulatory framework as opposed to a judge-made law and, and judicial enforcement of antitrust. I think this change of, of, of practice from uh, an exposed antitrust liability to a more exante regulatory framework change a lot of things in the way we see innovation and may stifle innovation because firms may be prevented from engaging into some behaviors which may be competitive, but they are prevented even before any kind of harm may occur for consumers. One of the things I think that probably most people who don't study this maybe fail to understand, and it's partly because of the, the anti-monopolist, I love that term anti-monopolist. I mean, everybody's an anti-monopolist. You'd be, be an idiot not to be an anti-monopolist, you know? <laughs> Problem is, none of these are monopolies. They're they're in competitive markets and maybe more a little more concentrated. The problem is, though, that a lot of these folks, um, they're what what folks don't understand is the goal of the quote anti-monopolists is really about protecting uh, smaller businesses and breaking up big businesses because they just simply have an animus towards large businesses. They think that a society in which there are large corporations, even though more than half of Americans work for large organizations today, I mean, most Americans work for large organizations, they see that as, as simply a problematic one. And so one of the things they don't like about creative destruction or, or innovation is it's oftentimes firms that are either small and use innovation to get big or big firms that use innovation. And they, they don't really like that. I mean, look at the last 20 years in terms of retail. There are a lot fewer retailers because you've had economies of scale. I mentioned Home Depot before. Hardware stores, there used to be a hardware store on every corner, it seemed like. The problem was they didn't have much selection and they had high prices. And then you had Home Depot and Lowe's in the U.S. and companies like that. And yeah, same thing in retail. So these companies, these, these advocates, they, they really don't want disruption. They want a society that's very stable, no change. Nobody ever loses their job. And, and look, frankly, I've lost my job before from an organization that, that was eliminated by Congress. I understand how painful that is. But if we don't have a society where there's constant sort of change and innovation, we're going to be stagnant. Our kids' lives are going to be worse than, are the same, if not worse than our lives. How do we, why do we want that? That's totally the, the, the point for antitrust challenge today. Innovation is costly. 
it requires a lot of capital. And in order to be, to be disruptive, you need some sort of capital and, and some sort of scale in order to be disruptive. And, and, and you agree that some in antitrust just dislike the very fact that large companies may be disruptive and may it's in itself disrupt for the sake of consumers and for the sake of innovations because disruption will harm competitors. And that's the very process of competition. So there cannot be innovation without harm. There will be harm. And the harm is always on the innovation laggards, right? And so the question is, to what extent antitrust should intervene to reduce the breadth, the frequency, and the extent of innovation? And that is a very complex uh, topic. And, and, and I think... Um, when I say that regulators and lawmakers may err on the side of creating too much of risk aversion is that they take a very skeptical view, which is revealed, as you just said, by anti-bigness. If innovation comes from large companies that disrupt competitors, then there is an anti-bigness uh, prejudice, which may prevent this innovation to take place, even if these large company are disruptors in traditional businesses. If you look at, for example, number of, of companies may disrupt traditional businesses from Airbnb disrupting the hotel industry or Uber uh, disrupting taxi drivers. So I think that's a really important point because we should make it clear that ITIF is for innovation disruption, not protection of companies whether they're big or small. And so there, there can be cases where large companies use their power to restrict innovation from a, from a small firm or another big firm. And that's what, what, what economists or antitrust scholars would, would call a conduct issue. And they're, they're using some kind of unfair conduct to limit competition. Generally, we're opposed to that because it harms innovation. But where we're not opposed to our companies just being able to innovate. And if that hurts other companies, so be it, as long as it's good for innovation. There's one thing where we should all agree, and I think it's just completely overlooked in antitrust, and that's the purpose of antitrust, is the fight against cartel. I mean, there's so much effort put on unilateral conduct, and there's a, an overlooked of the fight of cartel. I think antitrust should focus on fighting against cartel, against conspiracy, which truly harm consumers. When it comes to unilateral conduct by firms which have reached some market power, I think you're right. We need to be very cautious in a sense that most of the uh, behaviors that we may not understand uh, may not necessarily be anti-competitive behavior, may, may be novel behavior, original behavior that portray disruptive innovation. So we cannot and we should not insulate inefficient competitors from the competitive process. That is something very important. And I think we should ensure that these uh, competitors that are excluded or foreclosed uh, from the competitive process are as efficient as the, the, the company that uh, foreclosed them so that we can ensure efficiency and we can ensure that innovation and, and, and consumers are not harmed. This is what we call in the antitrust the as efficient rival test, just to make sure that if you're kicked off of the market because you're less efficient, that is not and that should not be 
an antitrust concern. One of the challenges also is, although I think antitrust authorities are getting better, historically they have really looked at markets in a very sort of static way. And when you look at some of the more important antitrust cases, you, you know, you see that. For example, the breakup of AT&T in the 80s, that was because they had a monopoly in long distance, supposedly. Anybody make a, a quote, long distance call anymore? I mean, I don't. There's no such thing as a long distance call. I use my cell phone. Innovation disrupted long distance yeah, call. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're on a long distance call yeah. right now, uh, really, and you're in France. Similar with Kodak, uh, an antitrust case against Kodak because of their their monopoly in chemical film. Well, that, that didn't last very many years after that. Microsoft, the same thing. So there's this enormous amount of t technological disruption that serves as a almost like an antitrust tool in and of itself. Right. And I think that's very important to, to mention that uh, it's very important to, to understand why firms innovate. So most of the time, they innovate out of competitive pressure. And I think antitrust enforcers should be really aware of the fact that clearly you have innovation because there's a competitive threat, right? So I think there cannot be so much of innovation if we're talking about some 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 sort of of, of monopolies of of a company that is completely insulated from the competitive process, and I think the textbook model of monopoly, you know, that comp that single seller that enjoys massive rents, completely insulated from the competitive process, we rarely, if ever, see that in reality. And I think what is what is problematic is that. Antitrust enforcers still have in their mind this ideal view of perfect competition. So everything in reality looks like imperfect competition and antitrust interventions is deemed to reach that level of perfect competition that only exists in textbook and that is never lived in reality. So I think it's very important if we want to have, as you just said, the longer view, uh, the more dynamic view of competition, it's very important to understand that the premises and the assumptions that we've had about the market economy, I mean, they were theoretical assumptions that were never deemed to be realistic. And I think it's very important to have antitrust enforcement and antitrust interventions in the real world what kind of world are we talking about? And just to talk about, let's say, digital companies, their reality, their business model is completely different than the traditional business model. And so if we applied, if we apply some sort of theoretical and realistic model to real uh, situations, we may very well err on the side of, of precaution. We intervene just for the sake of precluding innovative companies to innovate. Well, it seems clear that antitrust will remain a priority for lawmakers in the months and probably years to come. What recommendations would you make to improve antitrust laws or maybe more importantly, how to improve their enforcement? Yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion in uh, on Capitol Hill about antitrust reforms. The fact that antitrust need to be reformed, I think it's it's kind of inevitable. So what kind of antitrust reform can we suggest? First of all, because of the complexity of what we're talking about and the and the um, the need to 
have the resources to look at each and every company. I think the proposals that we see and we hear about an increase of resources of the Federal Trade Commission, I think these are healthy and desirable proposals because the complexity is has, has increased so much and is disconnected with the capabilities of the Federal Trade Commission. So it's important to to have these increased resources. Also, we need to focus, as I said, on cartels and conspiracy. I think we completely overlook the cost to consumers, to American families, and the cost to innovation as well, to existing cartels in traditional businesses. We, I mean, antitrust is completely focused on uh, digital companies and tech sectors. Might be perhaps because it's more attractive and creates some uh, media headlines. But I think a lot of traditional sectors are still under conspiracy and cartels that should deserve some greater focus by antitrust enforcement. Also, the fact that you have horizontal mergers that may lead to, to complex issues, I think it's fair to say that horizontal mergers uh, may have a larger scrutiny, but it doesn't mean that there should be some presumptions or systematic prohibitions. And a final point is to fully, perhaps in the law, to ingrain antitrust in an innovation-based perspective. It means that we need to have a timeline of analysis, which is no longer two years or three years as we currently do, but we have a we need to have a timeline over five years or even more in order to embrace a longer view, a longer term perspective of antitrust enforcement and to also better understand the competitive framework. So these are the kind of uh, reforms we should we advocate at, at EAF and uh, we should have the U.S. Congress being more uh, keen to adopt. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for being here, Aurelian. Really, really appreciate that. And I encourage our listeners to go on our website and, and check out Aurelian's work. He just joined ITIF early this year. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And that is it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in.